Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everyone. This is a special podcast from the politics crew. We're giving you a little extra coverage post-Nevada. Enjoy. Whoa, there are a lot of people here. And there are a lot of people outside who couldn't get inside. Bright lights said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. The idea of universal health care is not a radical idea. Compassion is based on love, is based on truth, not what we have now of greed, corruption, and lies. Before we rush to nominate Senator Sanders in our one shot to take on this president, let us take a sober look at what is at stake for our party, for our values, and for those with the most to lose. The happiest person right now is about 1.15 Moscow time. This thing is going very well for Vladimir Putin, I promise you. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940, and the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, It's over. Our volunteers are prepared to knock on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of doors. That no campaign has a grassroots movement like we do, which is another reason why we're going to win this election. And here we are the day after yet another win for Senator Bernie Sanders, this time in Nevada, where Senator Sanders built a broad coalition, which propelled him to an easy victory in the Silver State. As of our taping, results from the caucuses were still being calculated, and the second and third place finishes have yet to be officially called. Joining me in studio to walk through this is Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico, Joel Payne, a Democratic strategist, and Tara Golshin, 2020 reporter for HuffPost Politics. Tara, I want to start with you. Bernie Sanders, it looks like, has a very big win out of Nevada with the results that we've gotten in so far. How did he pull this out? I'd like to say that this is something that we could have expected from Sanders in Nevada. He has always had a very strong base of support among Latino voters. They make up 30 percent of residents in Nevada and also roughly around 19, 20 percent of the Democratic electorate there. And it's something that his campaign really targeted and organized around. They had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez go in and have Spanish language town halls. They even organized uh, soccer tournaments at high schools. Uh, they really emphasized reaching out to voters there. And there is an existing Democratic infrastructure for organizing in Nevada around labor. And that's something among the member level, uh, the workers, that Bernie Sanders is really popular with workers there. Well, th- let's talk about that because, um, Zach, the Culinary Union, which is known as the most powerful labor union in the state, did not endorse, but they took some pretty... Um, direct shots at Bernie Sanders' plan, Medicare for All plan. And yet, as Tara pointed out, Bernie Sanders did really well among rank-and-file voters. On the Strip, where you have a lot of those culinary union workers, Bernie Sanders crushed it. So what does this say about the power of the culinary union or Medicare for All as a as a factor? 
Yeah, I think probably what it says is that the rank and file is where the power is in this union. You know, there's probably the reason they didn't endorse anybody is because union members could read their own mem- or union leaders mm-hmm. can read their own members rather. And they saw that Bernie Sanders was widely popular. You know, there was a reason he thanked those people. He thanked rank and file members in his speech very pointedly. He did not say unions. He said rank and file union members. Mm-hmm. You know, leadership saw the writing on the wall, did their best, you know, with their flyers to try to knock Sanders down a peg. Very obviously did not particularly work in that state. But that was kind of one of the backbones of his movement. You know, he didn't have leadership support, but he had other unions in the state, too. He had, you know, very large education association backing him that, that kind of, you know, pushed him across the finish line in some points. But, you know, without the support of leadership, he didn't get the formal endorsement, but it turns out he didn't really need it. Well, what does this say, too, about Medicare for all? Obviously, Bernie Sanders's opponents in the Democratic primary have made that a big talking point. But does this suggest that it just doesn't work to undermine support for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, at least not in, not in here. Uh, you know, the exit polls, and it was kind of a binary choice. Would you like a private system or Medicare for all? But, you know, Medicare for all in a binary choice was overwhelmingly popular. I think it also underscores just how much of an anxiety keeping health care plans mm-hmm. are in the United States, and especially with these union workers who do have these really strong health care plans. I mean, we were hearing reports last night of, of union members saying, yes, of course, I love my health care plan. It is really strong, but we have to fight tooth and nail every time to keep it. And uh, it could go away at any time. My my job is not stable, necessarily, that I could lose that, and then I will lose my health care plan as well. Joel, I want to bring you in here to talk about the next state we're going to, which is South Carolina. Joe Biden, of course, has called this his firewall for months and months. Um, yet when I look here at the exit polls out of Nevada, African-American voters, the core of Biden support, especially in a place like South Carolina, only narrowly preferred Joe Biden. He got about 39 percent of the vote to Sanders is 27 percent. Is that enough for Biden to be able to win South Carolina? No, Biden needs to be dominant um, with African-American voters. And, you know, this is actually something I've been seeing, I've seen developing, um, say, over the last few months. Biden had built up this big lead, I think, in the minds of pundits. And I think what we weren't accounting for is the fact that African-American voters are going to behave very pragmatically this cycle. They are looking for a winner. They're looking for somebody who demonstrates that they can go in and beat Donald Trump. And right now, Really, nobody who is active on the field, and I'm not counting Mayor Bloomberg, nobody who is available to them in South Carolina makes that case better than Bernie Sanders. I think had Pete Buttigieg put on the same performance over the last three states, I think Buttigieg potentially would have been in this uh, position. I think if Elizabeth Warren had done this, she potentially would have been in this position. I think Bernie Sanders finds himself in a place where he is starting to um, have the feel of a front runner. And I think African-American voters are going to coalesce around that. And so I think Biden could certainly finish strong, probably no worse than second in South Carolina. I don't know if that's enough. I think he has to have such a big victory in South Carolina that it would signal to that establishment class that he has reestablished himself at the head of this race. And I'm not sure if that's possible right now. Well, Joel, we know that in previous elections, at this point in the campaign, people who had disappointing finishes, and we don't yet have the final total out of Nevada, but it looks like there are a lot of folks, Pete Buttigieg, Warren, Klobuchar, Steyer, who may not get or unlikely to get any delegates out of this state. Uh, they would have dropped out um, and maybe the field coalesces to two or three candidates. 
What's the chance that 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 actually happens? And if it doesn't, what does that do? I'd say there's virtually no chance before South Carolina. And here's why. Let's be honest with ourselves. If if what Bernie Sanders just did, if it was Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden, the, the, the field would essentially be cleared. There would be pressure from others, one, because there could be pr- pressure applied. But Bernie Sanders has kind of created this space in the race where you really can't place that kind of pressure on Bernie Sanders. He doesn't have big PACs supporting him. He is outside of the establishment of the Democratic Party, so he is beyond their long arms. So you you don't have people who can pressure others to really get out of the race right now or who want to pressure others to get out of the race. And I think it's because nobody in the establishment wants to accept the fact that Bernie Sanders looks like he's poised to take control of this race and keep it for the duration. Not to mention the fact that we're at the point now where I think delegate hunting is going to start to become the topic du jour. If you're Elizabeth Warren, if you're, if you're uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg, um, Amy Klobuchar, you're thinking now is, why don't I go and compile as many delegates as I can so that I can be a factor at a convention which looks unlikely to have somebody who has clinched enough delegates to, to you know, walk into the convention with a victory, right? I'm going to be a factor. I'm going to be able to be a person of influence. So I might as well continue to delegate hunt as long as I have the money. Warren's raised a lot of money since that last debate, I think mm-hmm. something like $14 million or something like that. She's, she's, she's beat her goal um, over the last two weeks. Judge has set out a pretty ambitious goal. He'll probably hit that. So as long as they have the money coming back in, I think these candidates are going to stay in. And I think that's just going to um, extend this race. And it's probably going to continue to frustrate Democrats who want to have a candidate, particularly one that's not Bernie Sanders, that they can coalesce around. Tara, let's talk about that person um, who's not on the ballot that Joel uh, sort of referenced here, which is Michael Bloomberg. Um, He had putting it kindly, not a great debate performance uh, the other week. We have a debate coming up on Tuesday. What does he need to do in order to be considered, uh, you know, maybe a, a strong contender against Bernie Sanders as we go into the March 3rd states? I think what we saw in the first debate that Michael Bloomberg was on stage was that he seemed utterly unprepared to address any of the very clear criticisms that were going to come his way. And he start. we've started seeing how he is addressing some of those now. He came out this week and said that he would release three women um, from the non-disclosure agreements that had complaints against him and his company. Of course, that's not all of the women that have non-disclosure uh, complaints against Bloomberg, uh, the company as a whole. It seems that he is aware that that didn't look good for him. Uh I think going into South Carolina, he needs to be able to stand up for his own on the stage and and make the case for why him instead of be on the defensive. Um, Obviously, he's not competing in the first four states. He's not competing. He's not on the ballot in South Carolina. Um, But the reason everyone's talking about him is that he's up in the polls in, in the big Super Tuesday states where a third of the delegates are up. And if he actually is going to be a contender in this race, he has to make the point that he can rack up delegates there. Right. And does it help Bloomberg on Tuesday, Zach, that Sanders did as well as he did and the other candidates who were trying to be the anti-Sanders, especially Biden and Buttigieg, did so poorly? It depends on how those other candidates react. You know, in the last debate, 
Sanders was still the front runner. He didn't have the opportunity to kind of show it like he did in Nevada, but he was still the front runner, and no one really laid a glove on him outside of Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. You know, how do other candidates respond to Sanders taking a fairly dominant lead a bit early in this race? It's still early. It's still only three states. Do they start going after Sanders? You know, Pete Buttigieg showed that level of urgency that Pete Buttigieg seems to be the only other candidate who realizes that Bernie Sanders is, could want to run away with this. Uh, he went after Sanders in his. I don't know what to call it, not a victory speech, certainly, in his strong third finish speech, he went after Sanders pretty... Buttigieg uh, Buttigieg did, yeah. yeah. For the entirety of his speech. So does Buttigieg continue that on the stage? And does the rest of the stage kind of flip onto uh, Bernie Sanders? If they Mm. do what they did last week, where everyone just kind of took their time just taking swings at Michael Bloomberg for the entirety of two hours, that's good for Bernie Sanders because he'll once again remain untouched going into South Carolina. If everyone else kind of trains their fire on Sanders, could be helpful for Bloomberg, who Bloomberg remains sort of competitive in these Super Tuesday states. We haven't really seen that much public polling out of a lot of them. But Bernie Sanders probably looks like he's in the best position right now out of everybody on the rare polling we've seen. You know, UMass Laurel put out a bunch of polls kind of across the board. The one consistent was Bernie Sanders was in one or two in just about every Mm -hmm. single one of them. No other candidate can claim that, even Bloomberg. And Joel, um, we have already started to see the sort of Democratic, quote unquote, establishment, or maybe the more moderate voices in the Democratic Party starting to freak out maybe a little bit, um, suggesting that Bernie Sanders is on, if not a glide path, he's certainly on his way to to winning the nomination, and that uh, Democrats are going to suffer at the polls if on the top of their ticket is a person who proudly calls himself a Democratic Socialist. What's your take on what Democrats could or should be doing thinking about Bernie Sanders as the nominee? I think the uh, clinical term that you used, freak out, is a good one. Um, it, it is, look, it, it, it's on the minds of every establishment Democrat. They are not just concerned about Bernie Sanders' chances against Donald Trump, but they're concerned about the down-ballot mm-hmm. impact. And those are all fair concerns. I think from probably the perspective of the Sanders wing or the progressive wing of the party, their perspective is Bernie Sanders has shown himself to be someone who can not only build a movement, but build a movement that's growing. You look at that Nevada victory, he is starting to expand his caucus. He's starting to expand with non-white voters. With Obviously, he's done well with Latino voters, but he's doing better with African-American voters. He actually, if I looked at, I looked at some of the entrance polling, he actually was at a dead heat with moderate and conservative voters. He was right there with Biden and Buttigieg around the same percentage of the vote, which suggests to me that Sanders can build a winning coalition. I think that establishment Democrats have to stop looking to the past and looking at what has not worked in the past and start looking ahead to what could work. They might be faced with a situation where Bernie Sanders is the standard bearer of the party. And I do think that many Democrats who can't see why Bernie Sanders is so popular, I think they're going to have to kind of get over themselves here a bit and start to consider a world where Bernie Sanders is the person that's leading the party into the next election. This happens a lot where the ground is moving beneath people's feet and they don't understand what's happening. And it's happened in the Democratic Party. It happened in the Republican Party in 2015 and 16. And it's happening now with the Democratic Party. Tara, Zach, Joel, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Don't tell... Don't tell anybody. I don't want to get them nervous. We are going to win the Democratic primary in Texas. This has been a special podcast extra from Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. See you next week.